Remain standing for our gospel lesson, also our sermon text from John 13, verses 18 to 30. Pay close attention to God's gospel. I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now, there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Then, leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread When I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now, after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. For some thought, because Judas had the money box that Jesus had said to him, buy those things we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. Having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately and it was night. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask for the grace that we need to live as children of the light and even to hear this text in your light. So we pray that you would do a work in our hearts to convict us, to encourage us, to build us up in our faith, to expose our sin, and to give us pure hearts so that we can see you. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. It's good to be back with you all and good to be sharing God's word with you. Today we have a heavy text, a heavy passage before us with many things to consider. The first thing I want us to consider, to realize, to get before us, before we jump into the passage, is that there are two kinds, and there are only two kinds, of sorrow over sin. 
Everyone sins, and everyone, at least eventually, feels or will feel sorrow over his sins. The only question is which kind of sorrow a person will feel. Paul talks about the, these two kinds of sorrow that a person can feel over his sin. He calls them godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. He writes in 2 Corinthians 7.10, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. That's 2 Corinthians 7.10. Now, in the second half of John 13, Jesus predicts two events. We read about one of them. First, he predicts the betrayal by Judas. Then, we'll see in a week or two, that he predicts Peter's denials. One disciple will betray Jesus. The other will deny him three times. In each case, the sinning disciple experienced bitter sorrow and sadness as the result of his sin. Both Judas and Peter deeply regretted their disloyalty to Jesus, their Lord. But they didn't experience the same kind of sorrow over their unfaithfulness. Peter's sorrow turned out to be a godly sorrow that brought repentance And that led to salvation. It left Peter, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians, it left Peter with no regret. Judas's sorrow, however, turned out to be a worldly sorrow that brought no repentance and that led to death. It left Judas with an eternity of regret. So, we can ask ourselves at the outset here, which kind of sorrow over sin do you possess? No one doubts that you're sorry about your sins, that I'm sorry about my sins. Everyone on earth regrets their sins at some level. You don't have to be born again to hate your sins in some way. The crucial question is... Where is, where is the sorrow over your sins leading you? Where is it taking you? What kind of fruit is it producing? Is it leading you to repentance and salvation and no regret or to death? Our passage this morning makes us wonder again, as we've no doubt wondered before, What drove this disciple of Christ to such a tragic end? What's behind this? Now, we might wonder if Judas suffered some great disappointment in life. Maybe he endured a business failure. Or perhaps he suffered abuse and belittlement as a boy. No doubt he had suffered and had been sinned against during his life. There likely were circumstances in Judas's life that if we knew them, if we knew about them, we, they would cause us to pity him as a victim at some level. However, the Bible doesn't tell us about any of that 
Not because it's totally unimportant, but because it's ultimately unimportant. What's ultimately important is this. Judas was a man who chose the path of sin, destruction, death. And he must answer to God for his wickedness. That's the heavy reality here that we have to consider. Now, the setting of our passage is still, as the previous time, in the upper room on the night before Jesus died. And Jesus is locked in with his disciples, and the world is locked out for these hours. The teaching of Jesus in the upper room, it's often called the upper room discourse, from John 13 to John 17, is really about as intimate as it gets. While Jesus was washing their feet, he indicated that not all of them, not all of the twelve, were clean, were true believers. Look up at verses 10 and 11. If you have your Bibles open to John 13, look at verses 10 and 11. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. So his body's clean. He goes into somebody's house and his feet get clean. So he only needs to wash his feet when he gets there because he's clean. But not all of you, Jesus says, for he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. In today's text, in verses 18 to 30, John tells us the story of how Jesus identified his betrayer. Verse 18, Jesus says, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. And then he quotes from Psalm 41. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Psalm 41 verse 9, which he quotes there, says in in fullness, even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Against me. This is a psalm of David, and David's betrayer was a man named Ahithophel. Now, Ahithophel was David's most faithful, trusted counselor. But during Absalom's rebellion, Ahithophel became a traitor, sided with David's son, Absalom. This story, you can read about it in 2 Samuel 15 to 17. It's one of the many tragic consequences that David suffered as a result of his adultery with Bathsheba and his murder of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. Absalom's revolt had caught David by surprise, so David and all his mighty men had to flee Jerusalem. David's counselor, Ahithophel, stayed behind in Jerusalem and became a counselor to the rebellious Absalom. Now this troubled David for a lot of reasons, but the one we're told about is that he knew Ahithophel gave good, wise counsel. So David prayed in 2 Samuel 15, 31 that God would turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. Now, God didn't turn 
Ahithophel's counsel into foolish, as David asked. But God did answer David's prayer by causing Ahithophel's wise counsel to be ignored, disregarded. And the story ends this way in 2 Samuel 17, 23. When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and went off home to his own, town, his own city. He set his house in order and hanged himself, and he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. Like Ahithophel, Judas went and hanged himself after his betrayal of the Messiah did not give him the peace and the satisfaction and the fulfillment that he had hoped it would. Ahithophel had eaten bread at David's table. So had Judas eaten at the table with Jesus. Ahithophel betrayed the anointed king of David. We could call David the little M, Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. Judas was about to betray the greater David, the anointed king of glory, the Messiah with a capital M. The betrayals of Ahithophel and Judas remind us of another psalm of David, Psalm 55, verses 12 to 14. For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. In John 13, 18, Jesus prophesies that one of his close companions, one of the men who had been with him for three years, would betray him. So think about what this means. If a person can live with Jesus for three years, eating, eating myriad meals with him, sleeping under countless starry skies with him, walking innumerable miles with him, hearing all his gospel teachings, including many that did not make it into the scriptures, seeing all his miracles and witnessing his perfect piety day in, and day out, if, if one can experience all of that and still betray Jesus, then it's certainly possible for a person in the 21st century to be in the company of God's people and yet not actually be clean, not actually be a child of God, not actually be born again. It's a sobering reality that this text forces us to face. Now, I want you to look again, though, at a phrase in verse 18 that gets overlooked. The phrase is this, I know whom I have chosen. Christ has a perfect knowledge of his elect. He can distinguish between saving grace and false profession. Church members might be deceived. The other 11 disciples Apostles may even be deceived, but Jesus is never deceived because he can read hearts. Now, so, now this solemn truth 
is it, it cuts two ways. It cuts in two directions. And I want to read a quote from J.C. Ryle on that. He puts it this way, quote, This perfect knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ is a very solemn thought and one which cuts two ways. It ought to fill the hypocrite with alarm and drive him to repentance. Let him remember that the eyes of the all-seeing judge already see him through and through and detect the absence of a wedding garment. Let him cast aside his false profession and confess his sin before it's too late. Believers, on the other hand, may think of an all-knowing Savior with comfort. They may remember when misunderstood and slandered by an evil world that their master knows all. He knows that they are true and sincere, however weak and failing. A time is coming when he will confess them before his father and bring forth their characters clear and bright as the summer sun at noonday. End quote. So fellow Christians, I want to end the the exposition of this verse on a positive note. Rest and rejoice in your Savior's perfect knowledge of you. Jesus has chosen you. And what he knows about you is the only thing that matters. Verse 19 says, Now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am. The word he at the end of that verse, and in most translations, is not in the Greek. Now, obviously, it would make something of an awkward translation to, to, to just end I am. So the translators put he. And in the New King James Version, the he is italicized to show you that it's not actually in the original. That's their interpretation of maybe what Jesus is saying. But, but really, we need to leave the he off because this is one of the I am statements that John's gospel is so famous for. When the prophecy in verse 18 comes true, it will be evidence that Jesus is truly God. Jesus is not just God's spokesman. spokesman. He is God. He, he, his prophecies come to pass just as Yahweh's prophecies Come to pass. Jesus is I am in the flesh. Verse 20 follows. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. Now, earlier in John's gospel, Jesus made the point that he was sent by God. And in, in those contexts, he also makes the point that he is one with God. And the point is he's one being with God. He is God. But now Jesus adds that he's also a sender. He's the sent one and the sender. He sends his di disciples. And so Jesus is making a contrast here between Judas and his chosen ones. True followers of Jesus don't just belong to the church. They don't just take part in the community of believers as Judas did. They also belong to the intimate relationship between Jesus 
and the Father. You see how Jesus is sweeping us up into that eternal community here? Being cleansed and born again from above, being a child of God, means being caught up into the eternal fellowship of the Trinity. The gospel, you see, as it applies to you individually, is a cosmic and eternal reality. When Jesus saved you, he raised you up into the heavenlies with him, but he also sends you out into the world as his ambassador. Now you get to be a part of the mission of the Trinity. That's what's going on here. And if you're representing Jesus to the world, you should expect, at least at times, to be treated the way the world treated Jesus. When you bear faithful witness to Christ, you should not be surprised if you are betrayed or if people revile you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely. It should not shock you if people misunderstand you or misrepresent you or mistreat you or disrespect you because, of, because you love Christ and because you forsake the world and the things that the world has to offer. Well, we come to verses 21 to 30, which record Judas's journey, we should say descent maybe, into deep darkness. In verses 21 and 22, Jesus announces the betrayer. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now this, this verse, these verses throw into sharp relief the sorrow that Jesus endured. The sorrow, the pain that Jesus endured to save us. This is part of it. Now again, I must quote J.C. Ryle at length. His meditation on these verses, I just found extremely profound. And this is a long one, so hang in there. Quote, The whole length and breadth and depth of our master's troubles during his earthly ministry are far beyond the conception of most people. His death and suffering on the cross were only the heading up and completion of his sorrows. But all throughout his life, partly from the general unbelief of the Jews, partly from the special hatred of the Pharisees and Sadducees, partly from the weakness and infirmity of his few followers, he must have been, in a peculiar degree, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Isaiah 53.3 But the trouble before us was a singular and exceptional one. It was the bitter sorrow of seeing a chosen apostle deliberately becoming an apostate, a backslider, and an ungrateful traitor. That it was a foreseen sorrow from the beginning, we need not doubt. But sorrow is not less acute because long foreseen. That it was a peculiarly cutting sorrow is very evident. 
Absalom's rebellion seems to have been David's heaviest trouble, and Judas Iscariot's treachery seems to have been one of the heaviest trials of the son of David. When he saw it drawing near, he was troubled in spirit. A little bit more. Passages like these should make us see the amazing love of Christ to sinners. How many cups of sorrow he drained to the dregs in working out our salvation beside the mighty cup of bearing our sins. They show us how little reason we have for complaining when friends fail us and men disappoint us. If we share our master's lot, we have no cause to be surprised. End quote. Let's get verses 23 to 30 before us again and make some final observations and applications. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. That's John. Simon Peter therefore motioned to him, to John, to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I, will give, I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. And Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. For some thought, because Judas had the money box, the money bag, that Jesus had said to him, buy those things we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. Having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately. And it was night. John ends this passage with a historical reminiscence that Judas betrayed Jesus at night. But this is far more than just a incidental historical detail. It's profound biblical theology. As, Jesus le- as, as Judas left the upper room and entered into the night, he was being consumed by the night, by the darkness. Judas was being swallowed up alive by the outer darkness which is how Jesus describes hell in Matthew's gospel. Judas was turning aside and going to his own place, as Peter puts it in Acts 1. But in another sense, it was also nighttime for Jesus. Jesus says in another place in Luke 22, When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. The hour of the power of darkness had come for Judas, but in a different sense, it had come for Jesus as well. It had come upon him. George Herbert's famous poem, The Sacrifice, has two stanzas, two stanzas on Judas. Mine own apostle, who the bag did 
bear. Though he had all I had, did not forbear to sell me also and to put me there. Was ever grief like mine. For thirty pence he did my death devise, who at three hundred did the ointment prize. Not half so sweet as my sweet sacrifice was ever grief like mine. Judas's apostasy is a sober reminder of the great power and the great evil and the great tactics of the devil. Up in verse 2 of John 13, look up at verse 2. We're told there that the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. Now in verse 27, in our passage today, we're told that Satan entered Judas. First, the devil merely inserts suggestions and ideas Words, notions. Then he inserts himself. First he stands outside the door and reasons like a gentleman. But once you open the door and let him in, he rules your heart like an insatiable tyrant. A power-hungry tyrant. And Paul warns us in 2 Corinthians 2 verse 11... Not to be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his schemes. But I'm afraid that many of us are often ignorant of Satan's actual schemes. And that we are outwitted by him. We don't really believe that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. We are more aware of how Satan might be devouring others or our culture than we are our own souls. 1 Peter 5, 8-11, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. The devil and his demons are devising schemes to make you fall into sin. They're personal. They're particular. They're tailored. They spy out all your ways. They're all around you. We don't talk about this reality enough. And maybe even this sounds like something that a different tradition should be talking about. But it's in the Bible. Your strategy in fighting successfully against the devil must be To resist him from the get-go. You must resist the devil at the door of your heart. Not at the door of others' hearts. 
You must not listen to his first advances. When he tries to put something into your heart, as he did Judas's heart, you must unleash on him the power of the resurrection that lives in you by means of God's spirit. You see, sin's desire is for you. It's for your marriage. It's for your family. But you must rule over it. And you can. You can rule over sin and Satan. Because, not because of your own innate ability and power and strength, but because greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. That's the reason. In other words, Christ, the, the ruler of all things who resides within, is greater than the devil. Satan is strong, but he has no power to harm you as long as you call on Christ and cling to Christ and use his appointed means of resisting the evil one. Primarily prayer and the word of God. James 4, 7 is as much a command, or I should say it this way, James 4, 7 is as much a promise as it is a command. We think of it as a command. It's also a promise. Here it is. Resist the devil, and what? He will flee from you. A promise with a command. When you allow yourself to entertain the devil's schemes, you flirt with hell. And when you flirt with hell, you never know how far you're going to fall. You can't be certain that you'll ever actually come to your senses. So in the coming days, I want you to identify where you need to intensify your resistance against the devil. Make it start out personally, individually, then Expand it from there to your family if you live in a household with other people. But start with your own heart. Satan knows the best way to plant the first thoughts of sin in your heart. He knows which sins you're most susceptible to. And he knows how to distract you from those by focusing on other sins that are secondary or tertiary. He knows when you're most susceptible. He's skilled at flattering your ego, stoking your desires, and informing your rationalizations. He's good at making you passionate about the wrong things. So this week, spend some time in prayer about this. Ask God to reveal to you what the demons already know about you. Ask God to show you where you make light, where you don't take seriously evil ideas, where you allow Satan to put sinful notions into your heart because you know you can kick him out when you need to. So do you know where you tend to give the devil a foothold? Do you, do you resent someone Do you need to forgive someone 
And you have for a while, but you just don't want to. That's what it comes down to. Are you nursing secret lusts? Engaging in fornication. What is your idol? What do you want more than to exalt Christ in your body, whether by life or by death, as Paul puts it in Philippians 1? What do you want more than that? Because that's what, that's what the devil will use. Ask God to expose Satan's schemes, to shine a light on them so that you can see them. And then ask God for the grace to fight valiantly in his spirit. Ask for help in resisting the devil at those battlefronts that God will show you in answer to your prayers. And he will. The initial moves of the devil may seem like small matters, but these first advances are where the road to ruin begins, always. I'll end with one last quote from Ryle. He that allows Satan to sow wicked thoughts will soon find within his heart a crop of wicked habits. Happy is he who really believes that there is a devil and believing watches and prays daily that he may be kept from his temptations. Let's pray and ask for God to do this in us. God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you have rescued us not only from the penalty of sin, from eternal damnation, but also from the power of sin, from the power of Satan. Without the redeeming blood of Jesus, we know that we would be eternally in his grip. And so we are full of praise and gratitude that you have pulled us out of the mire, that you've rescued us, and you've given us your spirit, and you've given us the power of the resurrection to fight the good fight until we die. Help us, even this week, to fight in new and mightier ways through your power. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.